we continue with Judge Chutkin's December 1st Memorandum Opinion in United States v. Trump. Picking up with Part 3, Section B of the Opinion. B. Structure The Supreme Court has cautioned against forms of presidential liability that rise to the level of constitutionally forbidden impairment of the executive's ability to perform its constitutionally mandated functions. But the prospect of federal criminal liability for a former president does not violate that structural principle, either by imposing unacceptable risks of vexatious litigation or by otherwise chilling the executive's decision-making process. Indeed, it is likely that a president who knows that their actions may one day be held to criminal account will be motivated to take greater care that the laws are faithfully executed. More fundamentally, federal criminal liability is essential to the public's interest in our historic commitment to the rule of law, nowhere more profoundly manifest than in our view that the twofold aim of criminal justice is that guilt shall not escape or innocent suffer. The presidency's unique responsibilities do not exempt its former occupants from that commitment. In Fitzgerald, the Supreme Court explained the structural analysis for presidential immunity. In that case, civil plaintiff A. Ernest Fitzgerald claimed that President Richard Nixon had been involved in unlawfully firing him from his government job and sought money damages against the former president. The five-justice majority noted it was settled law that the separation of powers doctrine does not bar every exercise of jurisdiction over the president of the United States. But it instructed that a court, before exercising jurisdiction, must balance the constitutional weight of the interest to be served against the dangers of intrusion on the authority and functions of the executive branch. When judicial action is needed to serve broad public interests, as when the court acts not in derogation of the separation of powers, but to maintain their proper balance, or to vindicate the public interest in an ongoing criminal prosecution the exercise of jurisdiction has been held warranted. Ultimately, the court found that a merely private suit for damages based on a president's official acts did not serve those interests and held that a former president could remain immune from such suits. For a federal criminal prosecution, however, the analysis comes out the other way. 1. Burdens on the Presidency At the outset, it bears noting that it is far less intrusive on the functions of the executive branch to prosecute a former president than a sitting one. The Supreme Court has accepted at least the initial premise that the president occupies a unique office with powers and responsibilities so vast and important that the public interest demands that he devote his undivided time and attention to his public duties. And the Office of Legal Counsel has identified three burdens of criminal prosecution that could impede the performance of that constitutional role. A. 
the actual imposition of a criminal sentence of incarceration, which would make it physically impossible for the president to carry out his duties. b. The public stigma and opprobrium occasioned by the initiation of criminal proceedings, which could compromise the president's ability to fulfill his constitutionally contemplated leadership role with respect to foreign and domestic affairs. And c. The mental and physical burdens of assisting in the preparation of a defense for the various stages of the criminal proceedings, which might severely hamper the president's performance of his official duties. But none of those burdens would result from the criminal prosecution of a former president who is no longer performing official duties. Accordingly, the separation of powers concerns are significantly diminished in this context. Fitzgerald nonetheless suggested that the prospect of post-presidency civil liability might distract a president from his public duties, to the detriment of not only the president and his office, but also the nation that the presidency was designed to serve. The Supreme Court highlighted two concerns. One, the public interest in providing the president the maximum ability to deal fearlessly and impartially with the duties of his office, and two, the fact that given the visibility of his office and the effect of his actions on countless people, the president would be an easily identifiable target for suits for civil damages. Defendant correspondingly focuses his arguments for immunity on one, the chilling effect personal liability would have on the president's decision-making, and two, the potential criminal prosecutions former presidents could face from local, state, or subsequent federal officials. He contends that cognizance of this personal vulnerability frequently could distract a president from his public duties, to the detriment of not only the president and his office, but also the nation that the presidency was designed to serve. Those concerns do not carry the same weight in the context of a former president's federal criminal prosecution. First, the Supreme Court has largely rejected similar claims of a chilling effect from the possibility of future criminal proceedings. During the Watergate prosecution, President Nixon argued that if recordings of his conversations were subject to criminal subpoena, the presidential decision-making process would be compromised because his staff would be less candid. The court disagreed, stating that it cannot conclude that advisors will be moved to temper the candor of their remarks by the infrequent occasions of disclosure because of the possibility that such conversations will be called for in the context of a criminal prosecution. The court quoted Justice Cardozo's unanimous opinion finding that a jury's decision-making process would not be meaningfully chilled if jurors' conduct were later subject to criminal prosecution. A juror of integrity and reasonable firmness will not fear to speak his mind if the confidences of debate are barred to the ears of mere impertinence of malice. He will not expect to be shielded against the disclosure of his conduct in the event that there is evidence reflecting upon his honor. 
the chance that now and then there may be found some timid soul who will take counsel of his fears and give way to their repressive power is too remote and shadowy to shape the course of justice. The same reasoning applies here. There is no doubt that a president must concern himself with matters likely to arouse the most intense feelings. But criminal conduct is not part of the necessary functions performed by public officials. By definition, the president's duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed does not grant special latitude to violate them. That is especially true when the violations require criminal intent, as is the case here. Like his fellow citizens serving on juries, then, a president of integrity and reasonable firmness will not fear to carry out his lawful decision-making duties, even on hot-button political issues, and will not expect to be shielded against the disclosure of his conduct in the event that there is evidence reflecting upon his honor. The rationale for immunizing a president's controversial decisions from civil liability does not extend to sheltering his criminality. Indeed, the possibility of future criminal liability might encourage the kind of sober reflection that would reinforce, rather than defeat, important constitutional values. If the specter of subsequent prosecution encourages a sitting president to reconsider before deciding to act with criminal intent, that is a benefit, not a defect. Where an official could be expected to know that certain conduct would violate statutory or constitutional rights, he should be made to hesitate. Consequently, to the extent that there are any cognizable chilling effects on presidential decision-making from the prospect of criminal liability, they raise far lesser concerns than those discussed in the civil context of Fitzgerald. Every president will face difficult decisions. Whether to intentionally commit a federal crime should not be one of them. Second, the possibility of vexatious post-presidency litigation is much reduced in the criminal context. Defendant protests that denying him immunity would subject future presidents to prosecution in countless federal, state, and local jurisdictions across the country. But that is incorrect. To begin, defendant is only charged with federal crimes in this case, so any ruling here would be limited to that context and would not extend to state or local prosecutions, which in any event might run afoul of the Supremacy Clause. Any effort to manipulate a president's policy decisions or to retaliate against a president for official acts would thus be an unconstitutional attempt to influence a superior sovereign exempt from such obstacles. And as defendant well knows, a person cannot be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. Consequently, denying defendant immunity here means only that a former president may face one federal prosecution in one jurisdiction for each criminal offense allegedly committed while in office. That consequence stands in contrast to the civil context 
where the effect of the president's actions on countless people could result in untold numbers of private plaintiffs suing for damages based on any number of presidential acts. Defendant also warns that if he is not given immunity here, criminal prosecutions will bedevil every future presidential administration and usher in a new era of political recrimination and division. But as the Supreme Court noted when faced with a similar argument in Clinton, that predictive judgment finds little support in either history or the relatively narrow compass of the issues raised in this particular case. As defendant acknowledges, he is the only former president in United States history to face criminal charges for acts committed while in office. If the past is any indicator, it seems unlikely that a deluge of such litigation will ever engulf the presidency. Despite defendant's doomsaying, he points to no evidence that his criminal liability in this case will open the gates to a waiting flood of future federal prosecutions. The robust procedural safeguards attendant to federal criminal prosecutions further reduce the likelihood that former presidents will be unjustly harassed. Prosecutors themselves are constitutionally bound to not abuse their office, which is why courts presume that they have properly discharged their official duties. And a federal indictment is issued by a grand jury, which is similarly prohibited from engaging in arbitrary fishing expeditions and initiating investigations out of malice or an intent to harass. Even after indictment, in the event of such harassment, a former president would be entitled to the protection of federal courts, which have the tools to deter and, where necessary, dismiss vexatious prosecutions. For instance, if a prosecution is politically motivated, as defendant has argued in this case, that alone may warrant dismissal. And if a meritless prosecution somehow reached trial, a former president would still have the opportunity to put the government's proof to the test. In short, the concerns discussed in the civil context of Fitzgerald find no meaningful purchase here. A former president accused of committing a crime while in office will be subject to only one federal prosecution for that offense, which in turn will only result in conviction if the grand jury finds probable cause and the prosecutor, judge, and all 12 pettit jurors agree that the charges are legitimate and have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Throughout that process, a former president may avail himself of the same protections available to every other citizen. In the rare case when a former president must do so, the Constitution does not proffer the sledgehammer of absolute immunity where the scalpel of procedural protections will suffice. The possibility of future harassing federal criminal prosecution will not cast so serious a shadow on the presidency that its current occupant cannot fulfill its duties. 2. Public Interest 
On the other side of the scale, the public interest in the prosecution of this case carries grave weight. The Supreme Court has repeatedly underscored its judgment that the public interest in fair and accurate judicial proceedings is at its height in the criminal setting. It has correspondingly refused to permit other concerns, including those asserted by presidents, to prevail over the fundamental demands of due process of law in the fair administration of criminal justice. Despite their other vehement disagreements in Fitzgerald, all nine justices unanimously endorsed that judgment with respect to former presidents. Justice Powell's majority opinion specifically contrasted the lesser public interest in actions for civil damages than in criminal prosecutions. Chief Justice Berger's concurrence made the same distinction. And Justice White's four-member dissent stressed that no party had argued that the president is immune from criminal prosecution in the courts, nor would such a claim be credible. Fitzgerald was thus undivided in contemplating that the public interest could require a former president's criminal liability. Defendant resists that consensus in Fitzgerald by pointing to a single passage in the majority opinion where, enlisting the formal and informal checks that could replace civil liability as a deterrent for presidential misconduct, the court did not specifically list criminal liability. From that omission, defendant infers that the court intended to suggest that criminal liability would not be available either. But the court's unanimous emphasis that it was not immunizing former presidents from federal criminal liability squarely refutes that inference. If anything, the omission underscores that civil and criminal liability are so fundamentally distinct that they cannot be understood as substitutes for one another. Accordingly, in the parallel context of cases which have recognized an immunity from civil suit for state officials, the Supreme Court has explicitly presumed the existence of federal criminal liability as a restraining factor on the conduct of state officials. It is no surprise that the Supreme Court has long recognized the special public interest in criminal law because of its distinctly communal character. That character is reflected in both the Constitution itself and the legal tradition from which it arose. Unlike defendants in a civil matter, for example, federal criminal defendants are constitutionally guaranteed a speedy and public trial before a jury drawn from their community, and the preeminent 18th century legal commentator William Blackstone explained the reason for the community's special involvement in criminal cases. Whereas civil injuries are an infringement or privation of the civil rights which belong to individuals, considered merely as individuals. Crimes are a breach and violation of the public rights and duties due to the whole community, considered as a community. The fundamentally public interest in a criminal prosecution explains why it may proceed without the consent of the victim, 
and why it is brought in the name of the sovereign rather than the person immediately injured by the wrong. Put differently, the very name of this case confirms the public's particular stake in its adjudication. It is the United States of America, the Donald J. Trump. Congress has also affirmed this special public interest in enforcing the criminal law. In the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984, it required every federal court to consider certain factors in imposing sentence, and declared the need for the sentence imposed. A. To reflect the seriousness of the offense, to promote respect for the law, and to provide just punishment for the offense. B. To afford adequate deterrence to criminal conduct. C to protect the public from further crimes of the defendant, and d. to provide the defendant with needed educational or vocational training, medical care, or other correctional treatment in the most effective manner. The public has an undisputed interest in promoting respect for the law, deterring crime, protecting itself, and rehabilitating offenders. All of those interests would be thwarted by granting former presidents absolute criminal immunity. The fact that Congress has spoken by criminalizing the conduct with which defendant is charged also highlights the separation of powers principles that counsel in favor of the court retaining jurisdiction over this case. When the president takes measures incompatible with the expressed or implied will of Congress, his power is at its lowest ebb. Congress could have penalized the conduct alleged in this case, if it chose to penalize it at all, with mere civil liability, perhaps allowing for monetary damages should a private plaintiff choose to bring suit. Instead, it expressed a far stronger condemnation by subjecting that conduct to the severe consequences of the criminal law. Whatever may be the case with respect to civil liability for former presidents, then, the judicially fashioned doctrine of official immunity does not reach so far as to immunize criminal conduct proscribed by an act of Congress. Indeed, stretching the doctrine so far would also impede the primary constitutional duty of the judicial branch to do justice in criminal prosecutions, not to mention the current president's duty to enforce the criminal law. Holding a former president absolutely immune would thus impinge on the functions of all three branches with respect to the criminal law. Congress's province to make it the executive's prerogative to enforce it, and the judiciary's charge to apply it. Most importantly, a former president's exposure to federal criminal liability is essential to fulfilling our constitutional promise of equal justice under the law. The government of the United States has been emphatically termed a government of laws, and not of men. As the Supreme Court has stated, that principle must govern citizens and officials alike. No officer of the law may set that law at defiance with impunity. 
All the officers of the government, from the highest to the lowest, are creatures of the law, and are bound to obey it. It is the only supreme power in our system of government. And every man who, by accepting office, participates in its functions, is only the more strongly bound to submit to that supremacy and to observe the limitations which it imposes upon the exercise of the authority which it gives. Perhaps no one understood the compelling public interest in the rule of law better than our first former president, George Washington. His decision to voluntarily leave office after two terms marked an extraordinary divergence from nearly every world leader who had preceded him, ushering in the sacred American tradition of peacefully transitioning presidential power, a tradition that stood unbroken until January 6, 2021. In announcing that decision, however, Washington counseled that the newfound American independence carried with it a responsibility. The very idea of the power and the right of the people to establish government presupposes the duty of every individual to obey the established government. He issued a sober warning. All obstructions to the execution of the laws including group arrangements to counteract the regular deliberation and action of the constituted authorities, are destructive of this fundamental principle. In Washington's view, such obstructions would prove fatal to the Republic, as cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. In this case, defendant is charged with attempting to usurp the reins of government as Washington forewarned. The government alleges that, with the help of political associates, he spread lies that there had been outcome-determinative fraud in the election and that he had actually won and pursued unlawful means of discounting legitimate votes and subverting the election results, all because he was determined to remain in power. In asserting absolute executive immunity, defendant asks not for an opportunity to disprove those allegations, but for a categorical exemption from criminal liability because, in his view, the indictment is based solely on President Trump's official acts. That obstruction to the execution of the laws would betray the public interest. If one man can be allowed to determine for himself what is law, every man can. That means first chaos, then tyranny. For all these reasons, the constitutional consequences of federal criminal liability differ sharply from those of the civil liability at issue in Fitzgerald. Federal criminal liability will not impermissibly chill the decision-making of a dutiful chief executive or subject them to endless post-presidency litigation. It will, however, uphold the vital constitutional values that Fitzgerald identified as warranting the exercise of jurisdiction. 
maintaining the separation of powers and vindicating the public interest in an ongoing criminal prosecution. Exempting former presidents from the ordinary operation of the criminal justice system, on the other hand, would undermine the foundation of the rule of law that our first former president described. Respect for its authority, compliance with its laws, and acquiescence in its measures, duties enjoined by the fundamental maxims of true liberty. Consequently, the constitutional structure of our government does not require absolute federal criminal immunity for former presidents. We've come to the end of part two of the opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up exactly where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.